0: chapter five want to uh say thanks to to miss morgan mackey for coming in here and decorating our stage for us this week uh it looks good uh and so we're excited we're ready for for a week of vbs All right, I think we got everybody. Okay, Uh, if you would, please stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to spend the the summer, we've pressed pause on Revelation, we're going to spend the summer looking at the Beatitudes. So Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 1, it says this, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for all you've given us. Uh, Thank you for uh, the Beatitudes and what they show us and how they they show us what life in the kingdom is to look like. Uh, And Father, I pray today that we would grasp this first one. Uh, If we get the first one wrong, we, we can't understand the rest of them. Uh, So now be with us and be with me as I uh, share your word. I pray that you would speak powerfully this morning. I pray for those who don't know you that today they would uh, see their spiritual poverty and their need for you and that you would save them. Uh, and then for us as believers, that we would remember our spiritual pro- poverty and, and as we just sang, uh, remember that, that it's only to the cross that we cling. That is our hope and that is uh, all that we have uh, in this life is, is your cross and what you've done for us through uh, your son Jesus. Uh, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. amen. You can be seated. So Matthew uh, was, as most scholars will tell you, or most scholars believe, was written by Matthew. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples, and from what scripture tells us, Matthew was a despised tax collector. Uh, And I don't think sometimes we understand the weight and the force behind what it meant to be a tax collector in that day and age. Uh, You have to remember that this man was raising money for an occupying army to continue to keep his people under their boot. That is what he did, and not only was he doing that, he's also skimming a little off the top for himself. So he was not a particularly well-liked guy in his culture. And in the book of Matthew, we find out that one day Jesus walks up to his tax booth, simply says, hey, follow me, and it says that Matthew drops everything and immediately begins to follow Jesus. Now, every one of the four Gospels are written with a different audience in mind. So Matthew's written to the Jews, Mark was written to the Romans, Luke to the Gentiles, and John to the Greeks. And so what Matthew's doing is he's trying to show the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah that had been promised back in the Old Testament. That he was the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 and all the other uh, prophecies that pointed to him. And so what he does at the beginning of his book is he traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. Now, I didn't realize this, but his, his position as a tax collector would have allowed him access to the public registry. So, so Matthew would have had access to everybody's genealogies because the government hasn't really changed, right? They want to know who to tax and how much to tax them, right? And your uncles and, your, and all their, your address so, so they know how to get your money. And so he would have had access to all of those things. R.C. Sproul tells us that his work as a tax collector, under the providence of God, was preparation for Matthew to begin his most important and celebrated task. I think that's pretty cool. That, that even in his role as a despised tax collector, that God was using that for Matthew to write his gospel, so that he could show Jews and us that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter five, verse uh, uh, Matthew. Uh, excuse me, in chapters five through seven of Matthew. And it begins with what is known as the beatitude now the word beatitude comes from the latin word which is uh beatus which means blessed so what it means is a pronouncement of blessing upon those who are included in the category so we just read it right so blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek and on and on it goes And what I want you to understand is that these blessings aren't the way to a happy life. So I don't want you in here thinking that, oh man, if I do these things, like these are the happy life. This is the the life that's gonna fulfill me and make me happy. It will fulfill you, but understand, happiness comes and goes. Happiness is always based on circumstances, right? Like you could be happy right now, go out to eat and it take two hours to eat and by the time you finally get your food, you're not so happy anymore, right? Happiness comes and goes. A blessed life is one that has spiritual benefit that lasts forever. And so this is what Jesus is pronouncing on the groups that he mentions, is that they won't just have a happy life, but a blessed life. This is Jesus' description of a beautiful life. So Jesus is saying, hey, all of us in this room are searching for a good life. We're searching for a beautiful life. Well, guess what? It's right here. It's right here in the principles of the kingdom. The beautiful life is one where truth and goodness intersect now we live in a day and age where we're told that the good life is a life that is lived without constraint right that, that we're we're happy if, if we don't have any constraint that that freedom is found without constraint so it's the maximization of choice so you're free to live your life any way you want as long as you don't harm anyone else right So it's my body, my choice, it's my gender, it's my sexual preference, it's my personality. If I'm not bothering anyone else, then what's the problem? But right here in the Beatitudes, Jesus makes it clear that the good life is not a life free of constraint, but one lived within certain boundaries and parameters that have been established by Jesus himself. I read a great illustration years ago by Tim Keller that basically said a lot of times we would think that a fish would be freer outside of the water, right? That, that the water's constraining and, and it doesn't allow him all this room to, to breathe and really explore. So take him out of the water and he'll be free. But that fish is actually less free outside of the constraints of the water because once he gets on the land, he can't breathe and he dies. It's the same for you and I. Is that Jesus wants us to know that there, there is a reality that we exist to conform to, and it's inside of that reality that we find freedom. So freedom, hear me, freedom isn't the absence of authority, but life lived under the authority of the one who created all life. So the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are not principles that we're to follow if we merit the kingdom of heaven. There's a mistake there. There's a lot of times people think, okay, well, if I'll just keep these things right here, then I can earn myself into heaven. Then I can earn the kingdom. This isn't what Jesus is saying at all. Instead, they're saying for a person who has submitted to Jesus, to a person who has trusted in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in their place for their sins, then this is how your life should be marked. If you remember the last two weeks, we looked at marriage out of 1 Peter. And what did Peter say? Peter said that if you are elect exiles, in other words, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you've been given the privilege of being caught up in this great story that God's telling, then your life should reflect the privilege of being caught up in that story. It's the exact same thing that Jesus is saying, that if you've been saved by Jesus Christ, then these things should mark your life. These are the virtues and the character that we should, as believers, be developing in our lives. So look with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter five. Let's look at verses one and two. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Now I don't want you to skip these these two verses, right? We're we're guilty of that sometimes. We, We wanna, let's just get to the good stuff, man. Let's just get to chapter, or verse three where he begins teaching me and telling me what to do. We can't do that because in these first two verses, Matthew's trying to show us something very, very important in these two verses. So remember, Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. And every one of the four Gospels are asking the exact same question. Who is Jesus Christ? So if you go back and you read the first four chapters of Matthew, you see that Jesus hasn't said a whole lot leading up to chapter 5. And then suddenly you get to chapter five and you get nothing but three straight chapters of Jesus talking. Nothing but red letters for three chapters. And this is very intentional on Matthew's part because he's trying to paint a picture to you and I and to his Jewish audience to prepare them for this moment. So remember, writing to a Jewish audience. In chapter one, Matthew opens up by showing us the genealogy of Jesus. He says he's the son of Abraham, the son of David. In chapter two, an angel comes to his earthly father, Joseph, and says, hey, you have to get up and you've got to go, right? He was from Highland Park, right? You got to go, right? Some of y'all get that joke. You got to go. You got to get out of Bethlehem, protect your family, because Herod is trying to kill all the Jewish boys. So get up, go to Egypt. And what happens is, is God protects a Jewish boy by sending him into the heart of Egypt. Then chapter 3 comes. Jesus is back from Egypt. He begins his ministry. In order to kick off his ministry, he goes down into the water. He comes back up again. He's baptized. As soon as he comes out of the water, chapter 4 opens up with Jesus going out into the wilderness, out into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, he goes and he walks up a mountain. Now stop me if you've heard that story before. Have you? Sounds a lot like that old Charlton Heston movie, doesn't it? I dated myself a little bit there, didn't I, right? Some of these kids are like, who's Charlton Heston, right? It sounds just like the Exodus. A little boy born under the threat of genocide by an evil king goes into the heart of Egypt. Then God pulls him out of Egypt along with the people. They go down into the water and then out into the wilderness. And then finally they go up a mountain. It's the Exodus, Matthew is painting that narrative for us, that Jesus is just recapitulating. Remember that term, just to repeat a theme. Jesus is repeating a theme that's been found throughout the entire Bible. In their book, Echoes of Exodus, Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson say that the life of Jesus is an exodus hidden in plain sight. Now the difference is this, is that the Israelites grumbled at every step of the way. They complained at God, they complained at Moses, right? Why did you take us out of Egypt? We had it so good, right? We had all the food we wanted. It was, it was wonderful. I mean, forget the slavery part, but everything else, it was great. We had it good there. Now we're out in the wilderness. We don't have anything to eat but manna and quail, and this whole thing's just getting really, really old. You know, Moses. They complained, they grumbled, but Matthew shows us that Jesus relives the life of Israel, and he does it perfectly. See, he was everything that Israel never was. And so the picture that Matthew's painting shows us that Jesus Christ is the substitute for for, for humanity. He's the Israel that Israel never could have been. He's representing them and human beings through them in the life that he's living. But then in chapter five, verse one, he makes a very explicit verse by saying that Jesus went up the mountain. Now, some translations will say that Jesus went up a mountain, but the Greek is is very, very clear that Jesus went up the mountain. It's the mountain. See, it's the exact same way in Exodus 19 that they talk about Moses going up the mountain. It says it twice in Exodus 19 that he went up the mountain. So, Jesus is not just reliving the life of Israel here. He comes out of the wilderness, he goes up the mountain, and what we see on top of the mountain is the new Moses, the better Moses. And what did Moses do when he went up on top of the mountain? He received the law of God, the Ten Commandments were given to him. Now, there's a huge difference, though. Moses goes up to the mountain. God from heaven gives Moses the law. Moses is the mediator. Moses then takes the law to the people. He's the go-between. That's not what happens here. says Jesus goes up the mountain. He sits down. Jewish culture, you sit down to teach. That indicates authority. You don't stand up right, and rock back and forth like I do. right? You, you sit down and that indicated authority, and then it says he opened his mouth. So the first Moses had to hear God speak the law, but the God man goes up the mountain, he sits down, and he just starts to say God's law, because Jesus is God. Matthew wants you and I to know the identity of the new Moses that's speaking these words to you, that this is the law of the kingdom of God. This is God speaking. This is his word. And so as we read it, we see what it looks like to live the beautiful life. We see what it looks like to live the blessed life. And verse 3 shows us the foundations of the blessed life. Now listen, if you get this one wrong, you get the rest of them wrong. If you miss this one, then you can't keep the rest of them. So it's very, very important that we understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 3. So look with me if you will. Let's just read one through three again. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first three Beatitudes are known as the negative Beatitudes. So, what they tell us is that if you want to live uh, the beautiful life, the blessed life, you have to embrace poverty of spirit. Your life should be marked by mourning and sorrow. And finally, your life should be marked by meekness. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it has nothing to do with finances, okay? Uh, In in the early uh, Middle Ages, uh, R.C. Sproul tells us that there was something called poverty mysticism, in which poverty was elevated as a virtue that gave merit to people in that state. So people wanted to be poor, act poor, so that they could get merit from the church. And that's not what it's talking about here anyways, right? Now, now the Bible does talk about poverty. Uh, It distinguishes in the Bible always between righteous and unrighteous poor and righteous and unrighteous rich. So unrighteous poor would be those who are poor because of foolish decisions, right? Or because of just wasteful spending or because of the way that they spend their money. Righteous poor would be those who, because of maybe a lot in life, maybe a disability or maybe something had happened to them, a loss of a job that they're poor, but they're poor in a righteous way. And the same applies to the rich. There are unrighteous rich, those who got their money through corrupt business practice, through cheating, through um, you know, lying on their taxes, whatever it is, right, for being a politician, whatever it is, right, they got rich. That was funnier than y'all laughed at. I'm just saying. Those guys get rich. It's crazy, right? Um, and then there's righteous rich, those who've worked hard in their business dealings. They have integrity. They give generously. But that's not what this is referring to. He's not talking about material wealth. He's talking about poverty of spirit. So to be poor in spirit in biblical terms, it means that somebody has poverty of arrogance. Poverty of arrogance. It's the polar opposite of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, they boasted of their riches and virtue. They boasted of their self-righteousness. Those are the people that Jesus says will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told a a parable that illustrates this point really well in Luke chapter uh, 18, verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. See that? That's self-righteousness there. That they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. There's your arrogance. Verse 10 says, two men went Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the Pharisee thought he was something else, right? He was thankful that he wasn't like all the sinners that he saw all around him. And he points out very loudly in his prayer, hey, thank you, I'm not like this tax collector. Thank you, I'm not like this despised, despicable, horrible person. You see the arrogance there? That's arrogance, that's self-righteousness. That's something that each and every one of us struggle with on a daily basis, right? Our favorite game to play in our part of the world is to go, well, I may do some bad things, but I'm not as bad as my neighbor. You ought to see what they do every night, Right? Did you hear about what they did, right? Well, I mean, I know, I, you know Heritage Days is coming up, and I'm probably going to act a little foolish, but I didn't act as foolish as they did. It's our favorite game to play. Well, this tax collector knew he had absolutely nothing to bring to the table but an impoverished spirit, and he beat his chest saying, Father, be merciful to me. See, to be poor in spirit means you are poor in goodness, and you're rich in sin poor in goodness, you're rich in sin. It means to admit that you have problems to the core. And listen, you don't have the solution for them. It means to admit you're bankrupt, to deny all entitlement, to reject The Western idea of individualism by saying, I am not the king of my own life. I don't have the resources to live a good life on my own. I don't have what it takes to save myself. God be merciful to me, a sinner. But listen, it's also not a one time decision. It's not something where you walk the aisle, shake the preacher's hand, get your get out of hell free card, and then you never go back and acknowledge what happened to you, right? It's realizing that it's a a daily habit to be poor in spirit. It's living every single morning and evening under grace. It's realizing that but for the grace of God, I would be worse off. It's coming to the end of the day and repenting of all the ways that we walked in arrogance and self-righteousness. And I've said this before, but repentance is not a divine spanking. It's not God going, hey, get it together. No, it's us going, hey, I see the way that life works best and it's your way. And I repent and I turn away. And I'm sorry for all the ways throughout my day that I tried to save myself. Through all the ways throughout my day where I looked at other people and I judged them and thought that I was better than them because my sins seem so much smaller. That's what it means. That's a difficult teaching, isn't it? It is difficult for us in our day and age. Because listen to me. The myth, whether you want to believe it or not, the myth still persists in our culture that people can get to heaven by their good works. People still think this, right? They think that they're going to be saved by the righteousness that they achieve. I'm about to prove it to you. Probably the biggest way that this is manifested in our day and age is through causes. Right? Join my cause, then you'll be righteous. Join my cause, and then you'll be saved. So be an environmentalist, then you'll be saved. Be an anti-racist or pro-science or pro-mask or pro-vaccine. Get on boards with these things, then please let the world know, signal to everybody that you're down for the struggle, and then you will be righteous. Get on Twitter and Instagram, and please let everybody know your preferred pronouns. And please, 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 we want to know, put that picture up there. I need to know if you've been vaccinated or not. Signal to the world that you're not pro-Trump because you're gonna continue to wear your mask. It's self-righteousness. It's signaling to the world that you've been saved through your cause, right? now. you just point the finger at the liberals we do the same thing right we got it right out here in our part of the world right go to church bless our food we say yes sir no sir our morals are better than them people outside of texas i mean in some areas in some areas we're just like everybody else but let's not talk about that don't blame us for this mess we voted for trump that's all y'all's fault Y'all keep wearing your mask and living in your mama's basement. We're not going to. Right? All these protesters and these rioters, that's childish, man. These guys need to get back to work. I can't believe people would behave like that. What about January 6th? No, ah, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that. That was just a stroll through the Capitol building, right? Nothing happened. Nothing to see. That made you a little uncomfortable, didn't it? See, we do it in our little corner of the world. Everyone else is stupid. We're the only ones that have done it right. And listen, I believe with all my heart that we've handled a lot of these things better than most other places. I believe that we've used more common sense than a lot of other places, but it's still no cost for arrogance. I'll admit, I struggle because I look at churches that have been too afraid to meet, and I've cast judgment on, ways in, on them in ways I never should have. One of the things I've learned over the last few months is, listen, nobody did the right thing in 2020. Nobody. Nobody. Everybody did what was best for them. Everybody did what they felt was best for their church, for their business, for their family. And I have been arrogant in thinking that FBC Spearman, and only FBC Spearman has done the right thing. See, we have to understand that in order to enter the kingdom of God, we have to see that in light of the perfection of God and the holiness of God, our virtue is bankrupt. We have no merit to offer God except for what was earned for us by our Savior Jesus Christ. So you and I can go virtue signal all we want. We can march, we can protest, wear your mask, don't wear your mask, get vaccinated or don't. It does not merit you or earn you a spot before our God. See, to enter the kingdom, we have to be broken of our pride. Right? Joe read this. Psalm 51, 16 through 19. This is David after he sinned with Bathsheba. And David says, for you will not delight in sacrifice. Right? It doesn't delight in, in your virtue signaling. It doesn't delight in, in all the ways that externally you look wonderfully. That's how he's saying. You don't delight in sacrifice where I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion and you good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, the irony of the Christian life is this, is that suppose you want to become a person of, of happiness or you want to become a person that lives the blessed life. You have to start with the fact that you are not a good person and you never will be on your own in order to live the blessed life, it starts with saying, that's not me. That's not me, I can't do that. Right? How many of you ever heard the famous story of G.K. Chesterton, that, that Time Magazine, years and years ago, wrote, uh, wrote out saying, hey, uh, send us in uh, essays telling us what's wrong with the world. So G.K. Chesterton wrote into Time Magazine and he said, dear sir, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He gets it, I'm the problem. Leon Morris says, we see a radical reversal of the values of this world, a life lived in poverty day in and day out, a life that says, listen, I'm bankrupt and I have nothing to bring to the table. So how do we do that? <laughs> right? I mean, if, we, if we've already established that, that we can't do that by looking inside of ourselves, right? Despite what Disney tells you, you're not going to reach inside and find the inner princess or whatever it is that you're looking for, right? Right? Prince, I guess, I don't know, right? You're not gonna pull that thing out of you. We don't have it. We we can't do it by acknowledging our worth because we've already said our worth isn't there. We don't have it. So how do we do it? Well, the key for you and I is to not depend on our self-righteousness, what we do, but it's to depend on the gift righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not to depend on our self-righteousness, but on the gift righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, mountains are are incredibly significant in the Gospels. Jesus is seen on a mountain at least seven times in the book of Matthew. A few chapters over in Matthew chapter 17, we're gonna see him take some of his disciples up on the Mount of Olives, and he's gonna be transfigured and appear with Moses and Elijah. The point of that story is to, to show us that he truly is God, that he's the greater Moses, he's the greater Elijah, he's the better prophet, he's the better priest, he is the king that we need. But then a few chapters later, Jesus is gonna to go to another mountain, isn't he? It's a mountain called Gogotha. It's a mountain called the Place of the Skull. And in Mark chapter 16, or 15, excuse me, starting in verse 16, we, we read this story. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Verse 21, Then they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross, and they brought him to the place called Gagatha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So I read a paper this week by a woman named Helen Bond. And she's an expert in Greek Greco-Roman culture. And so she talks about how in, in verse 21, the story of Simon of Cyrene. Simon's always kind of been held up to you and I as a, as a figure of discipleship, hasn't he? He's always kind of been held up of, hey, if you want to carry your cross, this is what it looks like. Because he steps out and he carries Jesus' cross. But she makes a case here that that's not what's happening. Because if you notice, it wasn't like Simon was like, oh, hey, here, I'll carry the cross for the man. I'll do that. No, he was compelled. He was made to step out of the crowd and go carry the cross of Jesus Christ. He was forced. See, Mark chapter 15 shows us this theme of of mockery towards our King Jesus. The title King is used six times in the chapter. Jesus is mocked for his kingly pretensions by Pilate, by the soldiers, by the chief priest and the scribes. And Bond says that the reason that Simon's actions are so hard to make sense of is because when we get to the story of Simon of Cyrene, here's what we do. We take our focus off of Jesus, don't we? And then we move our focus over to Simon. And we're like, oh man, look what Simon did, right? Look how Simon carried the cross of our Lord. And we take our attention off of Jesus. Bond says that we, we, look, um, we, we focus on the wrong person, That in that brief moment, we see Simon as the righteous figure instead of looking to Jesus, who's the point and the subject of the whole narrative, who is the only righteous person in the narrative. See, Bond explains that in that culture, when a monarch or a high-ranking official would come to a city, they would get a man and they would send them in front of this high-ranking official And that man would then carry a beam on his back. And on that beam, there would be written an announcement saying who this person is. So if Caesar was coming into town, the man would show up with a beam on his back and it would say that Caesar is Lord. So when people saw the man coming down the street with the beam, they knew, oh boy, the king's coming. We better line up and pay homage to the king. So in this context, These soldiers who had mocked Jesus throughout all of Mark chapter 15, it's not like all of a sudden these Roman soldiers were like, oh man, I really feel bad for Jesus. You know, We shouldn't have treated Jesus like that. That's not what they're doing. These men didn't feel bad for Jesus. Instead, they're going to use Simon to continue to mock our Lord and Savior. So they're like, hey, y'all want your king? Hey, take his cross, lead the way, let the people know that the king is coming. Let the people know that your fake king is walking down the road. And so these people are lining up. And they're not lining up so that they could cheer Jesus or even cry over Jesus. They're lining up to mock him. See, this is the most upside down display of kingship in human history, is it not? That they're not there to cheer this king, but to mock him. They're there to kill King Jesus. So see, in the book of Matthew, we go from Jesus sitting on the mountain, teaching as the better Moses, to Jesus the king transfigured on the mountain, to Jesus the king being mocked and led up a mountain to die. And listen, he chose to do this because of our spiritual poverty. He did this because of our pride and our arrogance that thinks we can save ourselves. See, check this out. In this moment, as Jesus is being mocked, led to the cross, Jesus is living out the beatitudes in front of our face. Jesus became poor in spirit, even though he didn't have to. Jesus mourned over sin, and even though he didn't have to, he carried our sin to the cross. Jesus was meek, and Jesus was persecuted for righteousness' sake. He went up that mountain, and he saved us because we couldn't save ourselves. He saved us so that we would see our spiritual need and our need for something greater than ourselves. He saves us so that we can now turn and submit and live a life in the direction that Jesus lived it. So this morning, my question for you is, is do you know this Jesus? Have you trusted in him to save you? Every one of us in this room are trusting in someone or something to save us. So you're either trusting in yourself and what you can do, or you're trusting in Jesus. So this morning, do you know Jesus? Do you realize that you have absolutely nothing to bring to the table, that you cannot earn your way into heaven, that you cannot merit his love? This morning, would you see Jesus carrying your sin? Would you see Jesus being mocked so that you could be brought into the presence of God, the Father, for all eternity? And finally, Christians, brothers and sisters, every one of us today need to repent of our arrogance. We need to repent of all the ways through self-righteous actions. We think we are somehow more righteous than others, that we think that we have somehow earned or merited the Father's love. Today, we need to once again look to King Jesus. We need to once again look to his cross and see that he did all the things that we couldn't do, that he lived the life we should have lived, that he died the death we deserve, that he took our place, and that we need to see that he is truly the only righteous person who's ever lived, that he carried our sins, And as we just sing, we have nothing in our hand to bring but simply to the cross we cling. That we need to run to this cross every day. And hear me, when we do this, then we are humbled. And then this causes us to be the kind of people that Jesus calls us to be throughout the rest of the Beatitudes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, help us to repent of all the ways that we think we've somehow merited or earned your favor. And today, could we remember that we have nothing in our hand to bring but simply we cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you today, Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation That as we've shared and preached the gospel today that they've been broken and that, Father, they would turn, repent, and believe the good news of the gospel and that they would leave here different. Thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he lived out the beatitudes for us so that now we could turn and submit to him, humble ourselves and begin to live a life in the direction that he called us to, to live. And it's in your name we pray, amen. If you would please stand as we sing.